Last week we talked about the first candle in the Advent wreath, which is the prophetic candle, the promise candle. And, this, and then we shared a little bit about some prophetic promises to our community, to our church. And so if you're interested in that, we, you can always go online and hear it. It will be forever immortalized in our maplecrestchurch.tv website. Uh, so you always go back and hear those things. Today we're talking about the second candle, which is the candle of preparation. We heard a verse about John the Baptist, which was talking about preparation. Once you receive a prophetic word, you need to prepare yourself for it. You can't make prophetic words happen, so don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we hear a prophetic word and then that we make it happen, but just like a farmer needs to plant and then God needs to provide the water and the sun and everything else and the nutrients, we need to participate with God and do the parts that he tells us to do. We need to participate in his promises, but we can't make a seed grow. We can't do his part. He has to do that part. But we do need to do ours. And so today we're going to be talking and studying how God has worked through people who have prepared the soil for his promises in the Bible and in other places, and then hopefully learn something about how we can prepare ourselves and our community for what God wants to do here and also what God wants to do in our lives. So I'll read it again, Luke 3, 4 to 6. As it is written in the book, of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation this morning, that you would Help us to understand how we can prepare ourselves for the promises that you have. I've had a few dreams recently. Um, I've had a dream recently and I've had a few dreams about preparing the way. One of the first dreams I've had about this community was actually going into the mountains and blasting rock to create roads. And when you think about making paths straight and leveling paths and filling in valleys in order to make a path straight. What you're talking about is creating an easy way for other people. It's hard for you, but it's easy for those who come after you. What might take you months or years to get past could take them a matter of minutes to get past. And that's what God was calling me to when he created this church. He was calling me to do something that would take potentially a significant amount of time and effort to do, but would create a way so that the people of Winnipeg and potentially Canada could enter into something that took years and months for a group of people to enter into, but for them could, could happen easily, could happen quickly. And that was the call of John the Baptist. I had a dream recently just before I actually looked at what this week was about, so it wasn't a reactionary dream, it was actually in preparation, which was fun, because today's about preparation. And the dream was me giving my office manager at work in my clinic, I was giving her lots of things to do, which sounded actually a lot like real life. I am constantly giving her things to do and then praying for her. Uh, and so I was giving her lots of things to do, and, and she was uh, doing her thing of trying to look like she could handle it. and. Um, and then, and I was doing kind of new things, and uh, in the end, what I was doing was I was learning how to work a backhoe. You know those big yellow tools that they have on the street that scoop the dirt to create roads? Well, I like to learn new things, and that's one of the things that I would love to learn to do one day. It's not a, a big dream, so if you have a backhoe, you don't need to necessarily invite me right away, but it is something that I could see myself enjoying, you know? It's like, oh, you get some handles, you get to do some big stuff, and, you know, it probably could entertain me for a couple of days, you know? So... 
uh, that sounded that sounded fun to me now, and it sounds fun to me in the dream. And so I was like, oh, I get to do this backhoe. And it was surprising to me that I got to do the backhoe for two reasons. One was because I have a lot of other things to do that I already know how to do. And I was like, wow, I actually have time to learn how to work a backhoe. And the other was, I'm getting into construction. I'm getting pushed into this completely new area. When I woke up and I thought about it, well, to end the dream, I was working this backhoe and I was putting down gravel for roads. I was building large gravel roads and I was laying it down. So it's the gravel, it's the, it's the initial parts of the road, but they were big. They were going through forests, they were going through the wilderness, and they were uh, being completed fa fairly quickly in a large construction kind of manner. When I woke up, it was encouraging to me that I had this dream because it felt like God was empowering me to do something greater and something new, something different, and that it would be uh, consistent with the initial dreams that I had about blasting rock. However, what was also encouraging was that it was a little bit easier. I wasn't up in the mountains having to blast rock. I was in a fairly straight area now, laying down gravel. It was going quite a bit quicker. And I wasn't just hanging there with a backpack and a stick of dynamite. I was in a large backhoe, able to move quite a bit of material quite quickly. I also had another dream I wasn't planning on telling you, but I feel like I'm going to, so I'm going to. <laughs> I had a baby in this dream, and it wasn't anything awkward because it was a dream. Uh, so I was still myself, and I didn't even have to go through any kind of awkward, painful expansion. I was able to have this baby and it give birth in, again, without any awkward moments, and this baby just kind of came to be. Now, I had the impression that it was a normal birth in the terms of the fact that I actually did have to go through quite a bit to have the birth, and the baby was, a, in fact, a baby. But that's quite different than a lot of the words that I've been getting up until this point, which was that I was pregnant. I don't have any, you know, gender concerns or, or dysphoria. I'm happy being a man. But when you have these births and prophetic words about being pregnant, it means that you are holding something in yourself, a prophetic promise and that it's being created within yourself, and that it's potentially somewhat vulnerable, and that there's a time period before that it can come into reality. And this church came into reality over a year and a half ago, and so I'm a little overdue. <laughs> it gets a little awkward when you're a little past nine months, and I was quite a bit past nine months. I was, I don't know what we're at now, 16 months, and so that can be quite uncomfortable and sometimes require a C-section. I had a client the other day who was going to get induced after, even before her due date, and so I'm past and it was nice to give birth. And I think that means that our, my ministry, our church, is in a place that's a little bit more independent. Still an infant, but a little bit more independent, a little bit more self-sustaining. And that is good news. So big roads, a little bit, another step in our development. And I feel like God is taking care of us. Even if we're a little overdue. So today we're talking about preparation, and this road building and giving birth, particularly the road building, is about preparation. It's about preparing the place, preparing a way for people who come after you. Now, you might think that you're better than a monkey at most things. Probably. Maybe not at climbing trees, maybe not at eating bananas, but you probably think that you're better than a monkey at most things. Well, there was an experiment recently that showed that in another way we have failed in the monkey-human comparison test. They taught monkeys and they taught people to press certain buttons 
And the, p the people in the experiment got points once they learned the, pr the procedure. So, you know, square button, triangle, uh, square button, wavy button, triangular button, press those buttons and you get some points. The monkeys got a banana pellet. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a banana pellet, but there are banana pellets that, that scientists use. And so these monkeys were also learning the same thing, you know, square button, wavy button, triangular button, get a banana pellet. We would get points. The people would get points. Our team got points. Then what they did was they started showing the triangular button, the last button in the procedure earlier, because before they were just learning. And once they had learned it, they started showing the triangular button earlier. So there was an opportunity to press the triangular button. Immediately, the monkeys saw an opportunity. And they started pressing the triangular button on the first trial when it was available. They did not go through the procedure of square button, wavy button, triangular button. They just hit that triangular button. They were excited and they said, I might get a banana pellet a little bit quicker here. And they did. They got their banana pellet. In the first trial, humans, only one person in the entire experiment actually pressed the triangular button early. They all waited for the other buttons and pressed them and went through their procedure to get their points. After many trials, only 60% of the people adapted and tried the triangular button early on. Whereas the monkeys were getting banana pellet after banana pellet after banana pellet. This probably says a few things about us. But the thing that I want to focus on is, in some ways, we're advanced, but in some ways, we're a little slow. Some ways, we're a little slow. And we can get a little bit stuck on the ways that we have in our lives. The things that revelations and about new opportunities to do things differently. The way the psychologist put it was a cognitive set. Humans were not were particularly good at keeping to their cognitive set. They were not cognitively flexible. Not like the monkeys were. Fortunately, we have a father, a God, who knows this. And today we're talking about preparation. Well, why do we need preparation? Well, maybe monkeys don't, but people do. We don't get it on the first try. At least most of us didn't. That one person did. Maybe they don't need. Maybe they were a forerunner. We had a John the Baptist in the crowd who was able to press the triangular button right away, but the rest of the people needed time and preparation in order to learn. And that is John the Baptist's ministry. The verse today was about that, about preparation. And his was a preparation ministry, but he's not the only preparer in the Bible. There are multiple ministries of preparation, but there are multiple ministries where preparation was the primary ministry of that person's life and was preparing the world, a worldwide preparation ministry for something new, a new revelation in the spirit. Noah was a preparation ministry. He spent his life preparing the earth for a new order, a new revelation of God. It was not a particularly successful preparation ministry in terms of leading many people into the new reality, but it was successful in saving humanity. And that we can thank Noah. I'm not going to have time to go through all of these ministries in detail, so if any of this is triggering you and what is that about, please feel free to do some research and learn about it. Moses was another preparation ministry. He was preparing Israel for the exodus 
from leaving Israel into the wilderness and into a new land. His entire ministry was about preparing for the desert, and the desert was a preparation for a new time. John the Baptist, as we've said, was a preparation ministry. He was named as a preparer, a forerunner, and that was what we were reading about. For Jesus' first coming, a time that we're celebrating now, now, one of the problems with a preparation ministry is that when you're preparing the earth, oftentimes the earth doesn't listen to you until after it's over. These preparation ministries look wonderful now, but they didn't often look like much when they were happening. We look back at them and we're like, Noah, that was such an important ministry. But the people of Noah's time did not think it was an important ministry. They thought that he was off. Moses had to do a lot of miracles in order to get people to understand his time. He had to do plagues, amazing acts, and still the people in Egypt did not realize that this was God's will. The amount of force required to get people to press the triangle was incredible, to get people out of their cognitive set about who God was and how he worked. John the Baptist was killed in his ministry. But afterwards, people understand the importance of a preparation ministry. And we look back and we marvel at preparation ministries, even though they were often minuscule, ineffective, and dangerous tasks at the time. Ironically, oftentimes people will miss the preparation ministries that have happened in the past. They miss John the Baptist and point at Moses. We are more comfortable with our cognitive set, and we will point to things that we have now become comfortable with to defend ourselves against the ambiguous new realities that God is pushing us towards. So at this time, it is ironic to me that we, that we light the candle of John the Baptist's ministry and know almost nothing about the John the Baptist that is to come. If I was to tell you, what is the John the Baptist that is to come? I bet you many of you would be a little bit uncomfortable in telling me who I'm talking about. Who is the John the Baptist ministry that is going to come to prepare us for the next coming? Many people are very familiar with the past preparation ministries, but are almost illiterate when it comes to the ones that are coming. My son named his first stuffy, which was a goat, John the Baptist. We marvel at the, mem at the preparation ministries of the past, but just like previous generations, we are almost illiterate about what is coming. We are falling into the same traps that previous generations have fallen into. So, who is the preparation ministry? We don't know their names, but they are called the two witnesses. And they are preparing the way for the second coming of the Lord, for the next age, the next revelation of our Father. Fortunately, God gives us words. He gave us words about John the Baptist before he came, and he's giving us words about the two witnesses before he comes. But we will not sit around the tree and read about the two witnesses. We will read about the past. I would encourage you, perhaps we need a new tradition. Perhaps we should be reading about the John the Baptist that's going to come, even though there's two of them. Revelation 11 
And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for a thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that, is symbolically, that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified, Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Nations will look at them. Even just in three days. Sounds like they have television. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them that they're dead and make merry and exchange presents. Maybe it happens at Christmas. Because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven to the God of heaven. Sounds like a different kind of Christmas. And it's uncomfortable reading, isn't it? It's like, is that the Bible? I'm reading scripture, so I won't apologize for it. Although if it wasn't scripture, I might. It's uncomfortable because it's a new revelation. It's a new picture of God that we're not used to. It's a triangle right away. And our, maybe a monkey would get onto this better, but like for us, it's like we have our ways of understanding God and we don't like the new revelations that he gives us. We get uncomfortable. They have a voice like fire. Psalm 29 talks about a voice like fire. Isaiah 30, 27, his tongue is like a consuming fire. Numbers 16, 35, fire consumes people before the Lord. These two witnesses are so interesting. People think that they're going to be Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't think they're going to literally be Moses and Elijah. In the same way that it says that Jerusalem in, is known as Sodom and Gomorrah, symbolically, I believe that they're carrying the ministry of Moses and Elijah. And there's a couple reasons I believe that. The first is that they seem to have the miraculous power of Moses and Elijah. Mo Elijah was able to shut up the sky with ro no rain, and these people shut it up for the entire time that they're ministering. So they seem to have the ministry of Elijah. No rain shall fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood. Who turned the water into blood? Moses. And there's two of them. There's another reason I believe that they are 
walking in the ministry of Moses and Elijah, and that is that they are two and named. Their primary identity is as two witnesses. And Moses and Elijah, in the times of Jesus, operated as two witnesses of the Lord. In the Mount of Transfiguration, which was primarily an encounter with God in order to identify the divinity of Jesus, there were two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, who spoke with him on the mountain. And at the end of that time, God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, God was putting an exclamation point on the fact that the Mount of Transfiguration was a time with him in order for people to understand this. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Transfiguration was about identity. Two witnesses stood there with the apostles to say, this is Jesus, God's beloved son. So Moses and Elijah operate as two witnesses already. They operate in the same miraculous power. So I believe that they're operating under a similar anointing in Revelation. Now there's two primary messages, probably more, but there were two that I got when I was preparing for this, primary messages of a preparation ministry. There are two primary misunderstandings of God. The first is that God doesn't love us because hard things happen. We confuse correction with the effects of free will and a lack of care. He's correcting us, but we confuse that. We confuse the difficult things with God not caring, God not loving us. And the message of a forerunner, the message of this preparation ministry is God loves you because I'm here to tell you about him. If God didn't love you, I wouldn't be here. If God didn't love you, I would just strike you down. But I love you, so listen. The second one is that he's not happy with you. God loves you. We can't even understand the measure of God's love for us. But oftentimes, people will misunderstand patience and mercy with approval. God gives us so much patience and so much mercy that people can often think that he's happy with you. And being happy with somebody's behavior is different than loving them and wanting the best for them. And the, the preparation ministry often has this weight of holiness. John the Baptist served the same pur purpose. Repent, because he loves you. He's not happy with how you're living now. So that's the background. There's the two witnesses, and there are John the Baptist, these preparation ministries. And there's three things that are things that I got that I felt were fairly new revelations for me. And I think that they give us something to help us to move forward as a preparation ministry as a church and to move forward as a preparation ministry in ourselves. The first is that God's arrival is not supposed to be a big surprise. Now, I'm not saying that he won't be dramatic. I'm not saying that he won't be sudden. But if you're paying attention, it should not be a surprise. It should be like, oh, it happened right now, maybe a surprise, but not that it happened, and not that it happened in the way that it did. If you are surprised, you probably didn't understand the preparation ministry that he gave you. 
We had somebody here just recently who had something dramatic and sudden happen in their lives, but they had received a warning about it shortly before. God prepares us. He tries to. He tries to talk to us about what's happening. But we often miss it. The other thing, well, the thing about this is that there are similarities between the, because it's not a surprise, there are similarities between the preparation activity and how God actually touches down. The preparation ministries are not at random. So let's look at that in John the Baptist. He had a very specific message and a way of delivering it. John the Baptist walked out of a place of great authority in his time. He was a son of the most powerful spiritual family probably in his age. He went into the wilderness. He became nothing. A man on the outside. And he did not perform miracles. He became nothing. He walked out of the glory of his family and into the wilderness and was attractive to the people, but not the leaders. What does that sound like to you? His life was a preparation for Jesus, who walked out of the greatest glory and came from the greatest family and walked into the desert of our existence and decloaked himself from his glorious position to walk in ultimate humility and weakness in order to reach everyone, but the people of low esteem were attracted first. He appeared to shepherds. He was born in a stable. Coming from a place of power to a place of humility was the preparation that John the Baptist's life was supposed to give us, but many missed. So if we apply the same thing to the two witnesses, how will they prepare us for his second coming? They are not like John the Baptist. They are very different. They call down judgment on people who oppose them with fire. They become a spectacle for the entire world. It's a world, literal, worldwide ministry. Nations watch them when they're dead. They have attracted worldwide attention which is something that we should not be surprised if our world becomes something that is a smaller and smaller place. And we should not be surprised because God is coming in the next age as a worldwide ruler. And in the same way, the two witnesses have a worldwide ministry. They come from a kingly place, a positional power. They are given authority and judgment. It's a different look at the same person. Jesus' second coming is very different. And it's going to surprise a lot of people who see him still in the John the Baptist reality. So, the first message from these preparation messages is that we should not be surprised. He is giving us wisdom already about how he will come. And the lives of the preparation people will proclaim the next revelation of God. The next one is that the prophetic messenger is often a culmination of the previous prophetic period. 
they are the quintessential representation of what God was trying to already say. So God has his messages, and he, the big messages, he allots periods of time in order to get across, hundreds of years. And the people who proclaim the next message are a fulfillment of the previous one. John the Baptist, as I said before, came from a very powerful family. He was a picture, perfect, of the Leviticus priesthood. He was the last high priest, the fulfillment of the Leviticus reality. No one, Matthew 11, no one greater than John the Baptist. I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. He was the pinnacle of the Old Testament reality. His father was born of the division of Abijah, Wit and his wife was from the daughters of Aaron. He, Abijah means that he was from the Aaron priesthood. He was a son of Aaron. Not just a son of Aaron on one side, but a son of Aaron on both sides of his family. His mother was also a daughter of Aaron. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commands and statutes of the Lord, says Luke 1.5. John the Baptist will be great in the sight of the Lord, says Luke 1.15. From the time of his conception, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Even though he did not walk in miracles, he did not drink wine or liquor, ever. Now you might wonder, does that mean that we should not be drinking wine and liquor? And I'm not going there, because that's not what this is saying. A priestly command was to not drink wine or liquor when they went into the tent of meeting. I would argue that John the Baptist never left the tent of meeting. He was filled from the time he was in his mother's womb until the time that he died. He was the pinnacle of the Leviticus reality and was in the tent of meeting his entire life, so he never touched liquor because he was always there. It was a priestly command that he was following. He probably had to live in the desert, otherwise he would become unclean. There's so many ways to become unclean, and he was the pinnacle. And priests did not become unclean. Leviticus 10.8 says, he spoke, Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. John the Baptist was the last of the Leviticus high priests and was the pinnacle of that reality. The two witnesses. The two witnesses are operating in the realities that the Lord Jesus spoke about for his next generation. They were discipling nations. They were not discipling people. Jesus called his disciples to disciple nations, and they were witnessed by the nations. They were operating in miracles greater than Jesus's. 
The Lord says that at the end times there are ten virgins and you have to keep your oil going in order to be able to please the Lord in the end. The two witnesses aren't just seen as lamps, although they are seen as lamps burning for the Lord. They are seen as olive trees, suggesting that they have gone beyond the command of having a full lamp of oil and have gone to the place where they are being consistently infilled with the olives themselves. They are, atta- they are attached to the vine and being filled continually, not having to store it up at all, but being continually filled and burning brightly. Just as John the Baptist was the pinnacle, this is the pinnacle of that burning lamp being attached to the olive oil plant. The factory is next door. I am not going to run out of oil. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise, for, they took, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. The T's two witnesses had not only stored up oil, but they were operating in the reality of continual supply. So they're the pinnacle of of their reality. The third is that they pass it on. Now this is very interesting to me. I love this part. I did not know this before, before preparing for this. Noah passed on his blessing to his sons at the end. There was a torch that was given. And he made some mistakes around that, but he still passed the torch from one generation to the next after the flood. How did John the Baptist pass the torch to the next age? Well, he's known as John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the baptizer of Jesus himself. Now, the mitvah is a Jewish term for a baptism. When we think about baptism, we think about Jesus' ending of his ministry, not the beginning of his ministry. We think about him going into the grave and coming up a new man. Jesus did not have to become a new man. He did not have to go into the grave. He did for us, but he didn't have to do that. So why was he baptized? And, he, and there is a reality there where he says, we're doing this to fulfill all righteousness, not because I need it, but it's to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what righteousness is he fulfilling? The mitvah, the submersion underwater, was part of the ordination of a priest. It wasn't an act of repentance, it may be, but it was an act of, okay, I'll word this differently. It was an act of repentance unto the giving of a ministry over to the next person. An ordination, giving over authority. When Jesus was baptized, he was being ordained as a priest. Now, John the Baptist was the pinnacle of the Leviticus priest, a son and a son of Aaron, fulfilling his priestly ministry beyond the commands, never leaving the tent of meeting, never becoming unclean, I would argue. Jesus was not that. He was not the son of Aaron. He was not of the order of Aaron. Do you guys know what order he was of? He was the order of Melchizedek. 
It was the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this mysterious figure who blesses Abraham. Comes out of nowhere. We don't know where he comes from, and he just blesses, uh, blesses Abraham. Boom. Where did this person come from? Abraham gives him a tithe. Who is this Melchizedek? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, says Hebrews 7. Now, if, Le- if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical, Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that the Lord was a descendant from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses had nothing about priests. He's not about priests. He's a, he's a descendant of Judah. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement like Aaron, concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus' life was indestructible. And that is his authority. And when he comes up out of the water, the new reality and the basis of that reality is proclaimed. Jesus is made the high priest under a new order not based, on Aaron, not based on being a descendant of Aaron, but because he is, this is my beloved son. He's the high priest because he's my son. And he's a high priest because with whom I am well pleased. He is indestructible. And he's not based on your laws. He's based on my good pleasure and on my lineage. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the order of Melchizedek, plus some. So when, when John the Baptist baptized, he was passing the torch from the Leviticus to the Melchizedek. It was the preparation, and at the end of it, he passed it over. How did the two witnesses pass the torch? The two witnesses, they passed the torch to the new order. First of all, they were the first after Jesus to be raptured. At the end of their life, they are brought straight up into heaven. They're brought back to life, and they go straight up. And that is the first rapture in the order of rapture. And the new order is announced right after they're raptured. In Matthew, in Revelation, sorry, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud... So they're raptured, and then the seventh trumpet blows. The two witnesses are raptured. The seventh trumpet blows, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The new order has come, and Jesus will reign over the entire thing. And the two witnesses are a foreshadowing of this as they were witnessed by every nation. It's a worldwide event. The two witnesses are a culmination, and they pass the torch over to Jesus, who takes his kingly position over the earth. 
Whew. There's a lot of stuff in there. I encourage you to look at that. First, God's appearance will not come as a big surprise. He will come in a way that may be dramatic, but it will be consistent with the way he has prepared us. So if you've lived a life where God's telling you one thing, expect that he will fulfill that. He will use everything that he has given you in your life, all of those messages to fulfill it. The second, God wants us to take us to a culmination of his prophetic word in our generation. So when you look at the purpose of your life, don't look to the previous message that he's given. Look to the message that he's giving our generation. Because that's what he wants to do. That is the overall template that we're following. Even though your prophetic promise may be very specific, it's going to be part of a message to our generation. And we need to be prepared for the new things that he's doing. We need to be prepared to press the triangle. 